Hi, you're listening to It Happened to Me, a rare disease and medical challenges podcast. The mission of our podcast is to support you, our listeners, and to create community as you confront the toughest challenges in life. All of us will experience health hardships. The real question is how we adapt. That's the focus of It Happened to Me, which wants to help you overcome limitations and live a full and satisfying life. Drawing on their own health challenges, co-hosts Kathy Gildenhorn and Beth Glassman interview guests who share stories and research to help you succeed in the face of difficult health obstacles. It happened to me, I'm not alone, and neither are you. Joining us again on It Happened to Me is Tamara Bloom. Tamara was on the last episode of It Happened to Me, I'm Not Alone and Neither Are You, where we discussed mental health. Tamara shared her expertise as a licensed clinical social worker to help our listeners develop a mental health toolkit and answered several frequently asked questions about therapy and more. Tamara is a licensed clinical social worker in St. Louis, Missouri, with an MSW from the Brown School at Washington University. She has worked with grieving families on college campuses and as a graduate and postgraduate level supervisor. Tamara has also served as a consultant National Center for Deaf Blindness and has been providing psychotherapy and mental health care in our private practice serving teens, adults, couples, and families since 2012. Tamara is the proud single mom of six children. Her five surviving children include 26-year-old Andrew, who has the Hattersley-Urano subtype of Wolfram syndrome. She is an ally and an advocate at work and at home and has taught her children to do the same. As mentioned, this episode is the second part of our conversation with Tamara. In this episode, we are discussing Tamara's role as the parent of a child with an ultra rare subtype of Wolfram syndrome. Tamara, welcome to It Happened to Me. We're so glad you're here. Thank you. Wow, the single mom of five surviving kids. We are so very sorry for your loss. And one of those children with Wolfram and a career in social work. Hats off, you are one busy lady. So let's start with Andrew and the Wolfram basics. What is the Hattersley-Urano subtype of Wolfram syndrome and how does it differ from the other types of Wolfram syndrome? Okay, so I will tell you what I know, but I have been in the Wolfram's community for not very long. So Andrew is 26. I think he got his diagnosis about 18 months ago. Um, so we're kind of new to it. But what I understand is that Wolfram syndrome um, is an inherited syndrome with one recessive gene from each parent. And yes, that- I, I personally have um, the Wolfram syndrome, but a, a different variant of the syndrome than Andrew, but also another variant of the neurodegenerative disease, but uh, a milder form. When did your symptoms start? Am I allowed to ask? 
Yeah, of course. Um, what happened with my symptoms is for 15 years, I've been treated for low tension glaucoma. And I started having issues with color and contrast and um, clarity. And color and contrast in particular are not typical symptoms of glaucoma. And as a fluke, I was at a retina specialist that knew um, rare diseases. And he recognized what, while they weren't typical of um, of glaucoma, he knew that they were of Wolfram genetic optic neuropathy. So he did all the genetic testing. And this was in November of 2019 that I got the results right before the pandemic when everybody closed down and you couldn't get into a doctor. So I kind of tabled it until 2021 as the hospitals were starting to reopen. And that's when I, I went. But I'm very lucky in that it is a um, mild form, an adult onset of something that in its severe form is childhood onset and a very severe presentation. So that's what Andrew has. He has a very severe presentation. And now we know that he has the hattersley urano subtype which means that for him, it was not inherited. And that instead of having two genes, right? In Wolframs, there are two genes that have problems right. with it, only one, which really confused me in the beginning. So he has one gene mutation. And I'm thinking if it was one instead of two, well, why isn't it more mild? And, and I'm not a doctor, um, but so yeah. So the difference is that his is a spontaneous mutation that happened for him in utero. Um, oh, really? Yeah. And actually I could tell something wasn't right with him when I was pregnant with him. Um, in retrospect, I now know it was that he had no, he had lost his hearing. Um, and I'd had twins before. And so if there was any music or anything interesting, those girls would kick up a storm, but then I have Andrew that I'm pregnant with and he never responded to any sound at all. And I was, I was worried when I was pregnant. I was worried about him. Was he deaf at birth? Yes, but yes. they were testing back then. By the time he was four I months old, I could tell that he was deaf because like he would, um, I would come in from maybe shopping and into the house and I would call him by name and he wouldn't turn to, he would never turn. He would only respond to me when I stood in front of him. And when I noticed that, I also noticed that he was clever enough to, in his crib, turn his body so that his face was always pointed towards the door. So when he'd cry oh. at night and I'd open the door, he'd instantly stop crying. And so there, wow. he's incredibly wow. adaptive, right? Wow. But also he was not uh, able to feed very well. And we didn't understand any of this. Um, and so I was exhausted. He was eating every hour and a half for the first 18 months. And sometimes it would take 45 minutes to burp him and then he would be ready to eat again. And so, I mean, I would just weep with fatigue. And then we went back to DC to visit my mom and she took him from five until eight every morning um, so that I could sleep. And with that little bit of sleep, I was functional enough that then we could go get him his first hearing aids when he was um, seven months old. Wow. So take us on Andrew's diagnostic journey. What were there other first symptoms? You're talking um, his hearing, but 
anything else? And how, in, you mentioned he was diagnosed in his 20s, but how was it, was there any diagnoses prior to that of anything else? Well, he developed cataracts at 11 months, which is oh, no. hugely wow. rare in a baby. Oh. And then at 17 months, well, at 17 months, he started to not do well. And by then we were already plugged into the deaf community in Southern California. So we got our Alexander Graham Bell newsletter. And on the cover was this beautiful blonde little five-year-old boy who had cataracts and a cochlear implant and type one diabetes. And this is before the internet. So, and he had Wolfram syndrome. So I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I wonder if Andrew not yeah. doing well, cause he had been drinking a lot, uh, peeing a lot, losing weight. So I went to my baby book and looked up diabetes and I'm like, oh, I, I think he has diabetes. So we went right to the ICU. His blood sugar was 1700. It was so high. Mm -hmm. But he mm. was a baby, so he's like running laps around the ICU, and he didn't start to really get sick until they brought his blood sugars down. But I asked the doctors then, could he have Wolfram syndrome? And we went to the geneticists at UC Irvine. I don't mind saying that they told me absolutely not. He did not have it. And wow. I'm sure why they knew that. They had done a muscle biopsy, which turned up nothing, and they sent it over to Columbia University in New York. They couldn't find anything. So they were sure it wasn't Wolfram. So what they told me is that they his diagnosis for most of his life was suspected mitochondrial defect. And they it was suspected because they thought that it was there, but they couldn't find it. And mitochondria is the part of your cell that produces energy. And so the theory was that as his body produced energy and grew, the defect in the mitochondria was causing all the damage in his body. And wow. so originally the first neurologist we met said that he would never walk or talk or live past age nine, which is really mm. a cruel and incorrect thing. Oh. oh, how awful. And, you know, oh. I told my daughter like two years before that. So I, I was, my head was spinning. Oh, I'm sure. How did you manage? How did you cope with four other children yeah, the, the loss of your daughter, um, Andrew having this terrible health issue, full-time, I, I, I don't know if it's full-time, but social work. And oh, no, I, I mean, I don't know, how do you manage all this? It was, I look back at myself in my 20s and I don't know how I did it. It was superhuman. But back then I had two children. And what I also had was a deep sadness that my life was sort of on hold um, and that I had had three children and one had died and the other one was, they're telling me likely to die. And I felt this just tremendous grief. And so then right around the time that he was about eight, um, he was stable enough. And then that's when I had a healthy baby and that was so fun. So then I'm like, let's have another. And then it just, I never intended, you know, I, I thought I would have my two girls and maybe I'd be lucky enough to have a boy and I would stop at three. But I think having the loss, um, I, it, I, I'm grateful. So, wow. And you I also, one I, strong woman. Well, this and I also, is remarkable. I was not a social worker back then either. I had ah. met a social worker when my child, uh, my first baby girl was dying of a strep infection in the ICU. And oh, no. This social worker 
was so courageous when like the doctors and nurses scattered, she would, she would come closer and she helped me parent this little girl. I didn't know how to be a mom. I'd been a mom for like a day when, when she got sick and also helped, uh, helped me when it was time to turn off the uh, life support and made me feel like I had been a good mom and that I took as good care of this little girl as could be done. And I thought, I this is the most important job on the planet is to move towards people when they are in crisis. And so I thought when my life settles down, I wanna get this degree and I wanna do this kind of work. And so um, that came uh, in between Andrew and my 18 year old. What a remarkable story. What a remarkable story. So now in in getting back to Andrew, um, we have interviewed a number of people who have rare diseases. And typically the time it takes to discover what is wrong is two to five years. But we have never had anyone talk about 20 plus years of trying to figure out what What is wrong. That's remarkable. That's remarkable. So tell us, how did you find out that he had Wolfram's? It's so funny because we're here in St. Louis where Wolfram's was discovered. Yes. Yeah. And actually Andrew's childhood endocrinologist works in that department and she would keep talking about him, but she would say, oh, but they said at Irvine, he doesn't have it. And so he was in the hospital in, I think it, I think I'm bad at dates, but I think it was November, 2020 because he was having difficulty swallowing. Um, and so he needed like an endoscopy and a swallow study and he was about to have one next, uh, next month, another one. I've already had one. This is the second. Sorry. uh, It's no fun, but you do what you got to. Yeah. And I just, how were you in the hospital in 2020? Well, this is the thing to be with him. There were no beds. So they had to put us on a COVID floor. It was terrible. It was terrible for about two days and then a bed opened up and then it was beautiful and they had cheese and crackers for me in a shower and I felt like a human being again. But the genetics team from Washington University came through and they said, we have a grant. Would you like us to map his exome, which I think is something like a genome? They said, if you you don't have us do it, it costs $8,000 to do it. So I said, sure, that's fine. Okay. Yeah. But I didn't expect a single thing out of it because we had already looked at his muscle biopsy from coast to coast. Um, and then months later, they called and they said he had Wolfram syndrome and my jaw about hit the Dropped. floor. Yeah. yeah. It must have been a shock. You know, but your instincts were right on target yes. from way yes. back when. You knew. Well, and- I wish I could find that little blonde five-year-old boy from Southern California yes. and say thank you. Because mm-hmm. he, it's him. It was him. Yeah. How rare is Hattersley Urano? Well, I know of two other families that have it. And, and we're in, in touch with each other. And I heard that there was a fourth, a fourth little one, uh, a little girl who died when she was three in a developing country. So it is, I don't know. What nano the word rare. Yeah. Super nano, uber duper rare. So... Andrew has Wolfram syndrome and he has lost his hearing. What other conditions does he have at the moment? So his eyes have continued to deteriorate. He, I wondered he, about his vision. Uh huh. 
He lost one to a retinal detachment. The oh, other no. has had so many surgeries. Um, and now his glaucoma is so bad um, that he's he's um, effectively com- like completely blind. Um, he got the, the, the next diagnosis was the type one diabetes. And then he also like he was developing physically normally until about 11 months. And then one day I took him, he was cruising around the furniture, almost ready to walk. And I brought him down for out of his bed one morning and he couldn't even hold his body weight up. He was like slumped over the sofa, whereas just the day before he had been. So he has, um, we, we worked really, really hard on it. And he graduated from a walker to walking but now I think his disease process is active again. And so now he primarily uses a wheelchair when he's out of the house and doesn't even want to use a walker in the house. He feels too unsteady, too blind. Um, and so he walks with assistance or he crawls in the house. And, and I know people don't like to hear about a grown man crawling, but truly it's how he feels safest. And it also gives him exercise. So he's got nice, strong back and shoulders and a little bit of independence and it works for him. So and how did he respond to the diagnosis? Finally knowing what was wrong. Well, here's okay. So maybe I haven't given you the whole story about Andrew because then he also developed uh, a form of narcolepsy where if oh. he gets too excited, he collapses and will hit the ah. ground. It's called cataplexy. Oh, no it's pretty much controlled with medication. Uh-huh. And then he developed, uh, oh, the difficulty swallowing, but also along the way, his develop, his brain development sort of stopped around age four. So okay. he's 26, oh, he also has a, a small stature. So he's five feet tall, about 120 pounds, and he's got the cognition of like a four-year-old. So I, I would never tell a four-year-old you have this. No, 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 no. Right, right, no. He doesn't, right. He doesn't know. How does his Andrew's condition impact the other four kids? And how do what's their relationship? How did they all get along? They get along great. Um, and really what has um I guess evolved as the children have grown, because it's incredible. Like the little kids will watch what I'm doing. They all, the three who came after him, all learned sign language as babies. They all oh. by the time they were I'm not kidding. Like wow. two and a half or three, they're his glucometer and checking his blood sugar. And so now they're tweens and teens and they are like my best helpers with him. Um, they can That's do beautiful. medication. They can feed him. They'll, they'll take him for rides in the car or like through the car wash because they know he likes that. They'll take him to McDonald's drive through. And so it's sort of like, he's our family project. He's the heart of our family. Oh, that's beautiful. It's super make me cry. You know something? (laughs) I was just going to say, my eyes are just tearing up and you have brought out the positive in a difficult situation. And I mean, how you look at your circumstance is really so uplifting. What a positive way to describe it. And Mm -hmm. I got to go back to how you juggle Five kids, how you juggle your career now in social work, how you juggle a a full-time, a full life with your partner, Rick. I mean, you've got so much positive and so much, 
going on in your life? How do you do it? What's your secret? Oh, you know that I have bad days too and uh, that I work for it. Okay, because you know, when you first talked to me, I was I was having a more difficult time than I'm having now. And even right now, it's a little difficult because I lost my, um, I had a wonderful caregiver who would stay with him twice a year for a week or so, so I could take these these great trips. And it was in Missouri, they give you a certain number of hours. They give me 400 hours a year to go away for respite. Oh, because beautiful. They, yes. So, but now here's my problem is I have these hours and I don't really have anybody to, um, to watch, fulfill them. Yes. And he's so doing so poorly right now that I'm also afraid to leave him. I don't want to be out of the country if he has some kind of crisis or problem. And so I've had to really emotionally work hard. My last big trip without him was last summer. And the emotional work I'm doing is that like, this is important and I want to go hike Patagonia. I'm like, Patagonia will be there in the future, but right now this is where I really want to be. And so what I would say to probably our listeners is first of all, that I get it. It is really hard. And I have so many days that I, I lack grace or I fall short of my own expectations. And so I just want to normalize that we, we all do. And I would say to build a network of support um, and have something, literally anything outside, um, outside of caregiving. So like I planted a garden for um, butterflies and um, hummingbirds. Aww. I'm like crazy with my bird feeder, but now with the butterflies. I'm <laughs> <laughs> looking out of the window like with joy. So even if it's something in your home, find something for yourself. Um, and give yourself grace. Like I said before, nobody will do this perfectly. Um, and also what I think is so important is to respect the independence and the autonomy of the person that you are taking care of. That just because, you know, Andrew is 26, but I tell him that he's a man. I don't, it doesn't matter that his brain is is that of a four-year-old. And we don't, we don't call daycare, daycare. We call it going to work. And he packs his toy cell phone and he packs his wallet. Um, he really oh. likes, oh. He, he loves. Oh my goodness. You are remarkable. Oh. Uh, I want him to feel proud of himself and good about it. And to understand that when he goes to work, he's helping everybody else in the family. Cause then we can go to school and we can go to work. It doesn't happen without his cooperation. And so I want him to feel good and proud. And I put cash in there because he loves fast food. And I'm a vegetarian. I don't like fast food. <laughs> <laughs> he's his own person. And I'm like, you know what? You go to work, you get money. And the pride he feels when he pulls cash out of his wallet to buy his own Diet Coke at McDonald's is fantastic. Oh, that's um, wonderful. And one more thing is that he has a cat and a dog. And I think that that is really, really important when the person who's being cared for gets to be a caregiver also. You know, he has these little, he calls them his little babies and he loves on them. And he's taught our dog sign language and she'll do tricks for him really? in the morning for a treat. Yeah. And so it's like, I would be thinking like, well, in addition to yourself and what do you need on this day? Like, what does your person need if they're, if they have that level of dependence on you? That's a beautiful way to look at it. Yes. Yeah. Oh, 
Now, um, I, I, I want to ask a question, but it's like my breath's taken away. It's so hard to yes. go back to a, a, a question like this, but I'm just wondering with um, this subtype, if there are any clinical trials going on, if there's anything else that Andrew can participate in, like you mentioned, the, not the genome testing, but the echo genome or what? what uh, the yes, thank you. Thank you. Well, I saw that Dr. Urano uh, wrote in a, something you can find online that he has ideas for Hattersley Urano clinical trials. I have not heard of them yet. Okay. But there seem to be on the horizon, well, which I'm, is I, hopefully. I'm hopefully. Hoping. And there's some uh, that hopefully will be on the horizon for my variant as well. Um, Dr. Urano... I can say nothing, uh, not enough good about him. Mean, Does your variant have a name? Um, yes. Um, well, it's it's got uh, a number. It's like uh, RSSC or something like that. Uh, I have to look it up. I wrote it down. But um, so it, is like that the one that the other 250 people who have Wolfram syndrome have, or is it also like a smaller subset? Well, it's a small, it is the variant that only appears in the Ashkenazi Eastern European Jewish community, those with Eastern uh, ancestry. And um, it is a niche specific, Dr. Urano has said, to the Ashkenazi Jewish community. And um, I don't think he's found anyone with this particular variant outside that genetic background. Okay. I just, uh, you know, for myself, I just think of myself as the luckiest unlucky person you could imagine. I mean, it's just, it's, it's um, I'm, I'm lucky it's where it is and I'm 67 and proud of it. And, you know, it just surfaced in, in this decade. That's, that's wonderful. But on the other hand, I can't drive, you know, there's things I can't do anymore because of my optic atrophy and everything else. And you, you make do with what you have and you're such an inspiration with that. You live your life to the max, but in any way you can. And, uh, but I love your advice to um, caregivers to have the person being cared for also care for something. I love that. Mm -hmm. And how important it was to have pets for Andrew. That's just beautiful. Mm -hmm. Thank you. What is Andrew's prognosis? Can you tell us? It is not great. No, no, it's not great. And we can tell that it's, um, it's accelerating. And so that's oh. really, that's discouraging. But he's growing up in such an optimistic, upliving environment. So I, I can't imagine a more wonderful place to be than where he is right now. Absolutely. And loving and kind yes. and compassion and everything he could hope for. And I don't think he knows, which I think is a blessing. When he was a but baby, you're... he would look behind my ears to see where my hearing aids were. But that's uh... the only time that I've ever seen any sort of indication from him that he knows that he's different. Um, he just accepts it as 
the this way is it is. All, this is all he knows. Yeah. And I would say he's happy. I think it's helpful to me. The biggest thing from going from thinking he had a suspected mitochondrial defect to having the diagnosis was I lived with this undercurrent of abject terror of who will take care of him when I'm not here. And mm. I said, special needs trust. And I like, I mean, I cried about it. And then it's like, oh, wait a minute. He, he probably won't outlive me, which is so heartbreaking. But also Andrew cannot live in this world without his mom. He can't. I'm like his, I'm his lifeline. His, this is what he says about 300 times a day is mama. He just, I, maybe because he can't see, he wants to know where I am in space all the time. Mama, mama, mama. And I'm, I'm like, I'm right here. I'm right here. It really is. It's really beautiful what you're doing for your family and what you're teaching your other children at the same time and how they're growing up, knowing that there are people with differences and they are also beautiful. Yes. I'm glad you said that Andrew is beautiful. And the one thing we say to each other all the time, is without a doubt, he would do it for us. This kid is so loving and so compassionate. He's incredible. Oh, that's Tomorrow, before, before we leave you, you, you have such beautiful words of wisdom. Anything you would like to add? Yeah, I would like to say that when it feels like too much to remember that everything is temporary. It's just temporary. So maybe you get through the next minute, right? Or maybe you get through the next hour. You don't need to be thinking about next year. You know, just get through the moment. Tomorrow, I think that we would all like to sign up and be a patient. Oh, I know <laughs> I would. I would, Kathy. How about Absolutely. we could go into group counseling? I, I think fun. you are the most optimistic, positive person and you radiate joy and happiness in in the most unlikely spots i i want to thank you, you so much can do attitude yeah it can be done and you recognize you're doing it it may not be fun it may not be what you want to do every moment but you're doing it and you recognize that and it's such a gift to your psyche it is a gift what could be more important than this than to love and care for someone with Wolfram syndrome, like Andrew. Like, I can't imagine a more, a better use of my life. And actually I think of it as that everything else is peripheral to that, you know, even like the other children, what a blessing. They're the icing on my cake and this, this wonderful job I have that lets me take care of them. Um, but really my life's work, I'm so proud of Andrew. And here's oh. the Maybe like, can well, we backtrack just a little? Can I just brag on yes, this a little please, bit? Yes, please. Because when he was 12, the National Deafblind Census called us and said, we don't know how many kids in the country have deafness and blindness and a cochlear implant. We also don't know how they're being educated. So could we bring a researcher to the house to talk with you and Andrew? And I said, sure. So someone from University of Kansas came out to our house and we had a nice chat one afternoon. And then six months later, she called and said that they were picking the three children in the country who were doing the best with utilizing their cochlear implant um, and wanting to hire their parents to be consultants so that they could develop a curriculum to help these children. 
and Andrew was one of the three. Three. Oh, uh, wow. Like, How? Why? Like, and she said that in the middle of us chatting that he stopped and he interrupted because he heard a truck go by outside. And she said, we have to know how did you teach him to do that? And I was like, oh. well, this is the best job. They paid for me to go to Portland and then talk about him for like four hours. And I'm like, well, this is the most fun job ever. <laughs> <laughs> you are wow. such a wow. You are a uh, wow across the board. Andrew is a pleasure. Andrew, I have to say to all the parents who have children with rare diseases or medical challenges, or medical challenges that you have been an inspiring guest. And I just can't thank you enough. Thank you for being our guest today on It Happened to Me. I hope so. Thank Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of It Happened to Me. We encourage you to learn more at ithappentomepod.com. Please use the contact form on our website to submit your guest suggestions, comments, questions, ideas, and feedback for the show. You can also email us directly at ithappentomepod at gmail.com. We would really appreciate it if you can leave us a five-star rating and review on your podcast app like Apple or Spotify. This helps others in the rare disease and medical challenge community find us. It Happened to Me is created and hosted by Kathy Gillenhorn and Beth Glassman. I'm Kira Deneen from DNA Today, and I serve as our executive producer and marketing lead. Amanda Andrioli is our associate producer. Ashlyn Anokian is our graphic designer. And remember, it happened to me. I'm not alone, and neither are you.